0: Just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mayle. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. It's 9 o'clock Pacific on Saturday. My name is Mike Mayle. I'm with the Opus 111 Group, and we're here to talk with you on Money Management about the markets the economy and to help give you some insights into what it's all been going on and how it might be affecting you and your portfolios. We'll start with uh, where the markets all closed yesterday. The Dow ended the week at 32,845, S&P finished at 4130, the Nasdaq at 12,390. Russell two thousand up to eighteen eighty five gold settled at seventeen sixty one an ounce silver at twenty dollars twenty six cents an ounce crude closed at ninety nine sixty seven a barrel the ten year treasury at two point six four percent that's the lowest it's been in a while and soft white wheat was quoted at nine dollars eight cents a bushel now we uh, have just concluded for all intents and purposes uh, the trading month of July and each of the Uh, Major indicators uh, had a winning week and put up their best month of the year so far. Uh, We had the Dow uh, gaining 6.7% in the month, the S&P up 9.1%, and the NASDAQ up 12.4%. Now, from their highs, they're still down, but uh, we're turning it around a little bit. Uh, So it's the best gain since 2020. Now, more than 150 of the S&P companies have reported their second quarter earnings so far. This, according to FactSet, and about 70% have beaten analyst expectations. And if you're doing better than expectations, then the analysts are going to talk nice about you and your stock or whatever is likely going to be bid higher. Don't do them on the other side, however. Um. You know, we had a lot going on with the economy in terms of reports this week, and stocks hit their high of the day Wednesday afternoon after uh, Mr. Powell uh, left the door open about the size of the central bank's next rate move at its meeting in September. He noted that it would also eventually uh, slow the uh, size of the rate hikes. He said in the press conference after the announcement that the Fed would hike, could hike, by uh, three quarter, another three-quarters of a percent, 75 basis points, uh, again in September. But it's going to be data-dependent, so maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, so as a result of the announcement Wednesday, the Fed funds rate is now in a range between two and a quarter and two and a half percent. And interestingly, it was unanimous. All 12 members uh, voted for it, and I don't know that that happened time recently they're not well they work together but they have their own opinions for sure uh, and now the traders are betting that the fed's going to raise rates again in September and then again in November and December and then they're saying that possibly cutting rates in the spring and again data dependent Greg McBride is the chief financial analyst at analyst at Bankrate.com, and he had this to say. And I'm quoting: "With the Federal Reserve raising interest rates at an unprecedented pace, variable rate debts such as credit cards, home equity lines of credit will be have the biggest exposure." And uh, let me give you a little more detail about some of that. Uh, I got this data from uh, CNBC this week yesterday. I guess it would have been Thursday they put this out. Um, here's five things that are going to be affected uh, by the rate changes. Uh, credit cards. Uh, with the Fed raising interest rates, your credit cards annual percentage rate, the old good old APR, will likely go up uh, within a couple billing cycles. That means you're going to be paying more on any outstanding balances that aren't paid up by the end of the month. Uh, so the the amount of increase, the 2.25% increase year to date, means that if you're only making minimum payments on a $5,000 balance, it's going to take you an additional five months and $888, uh, $868 in interest to pay off the card. Now that's from bank rate. In auto loans, they say the auto loan lenders uh, use the Fed's benchmark rate uh, to determine the interest rate you're going to be paying to buy your car. Now, that's not going to affect borrowers already locked into fixed-rate financing, but new car loans and those with variable rate financing will likely go up in cost. The increase uh, translates to, so, uh, for a $35,000 five-year new car loan. The monthly payment is $36 higher than what it was taken out at the beginning of the year. That's also from bank rate. Now, here's one, adjustable rate mortgages. Although I did read yesterday that uh, the mortgage rates dropped from uh, 5.54%, this is fixed on 30 years, 5.54% on Wednesday to 5.22% on Friday. So maybe that's an indication of further drops. But this their benchmark, the Fed's benchmark, indirectly affects rates on variable rate mortgages or adjustable rate mortgages, a.k.a. ARMS, uh, most folks have a uh, fixed rate, but there's a lot with who don't. and So those with the arms can expect a bump in the rate on uh, their uh, home loans, uh, and it's going to vary on the lender, size of the mortgage, your credit score, all of that stuff. And uh, the average interest rate for five-year arms has nearly doubled since the beginning of the year, and that's because of the four Fed rate hikes over that same period of time. Now, private student loans... Folks with federal student loans are going to be unaffected by all this, but there is a payment, there still is a payment and interest freeze on those uh, through August 31st, who knows what they're going to do after that. But with private variable student rate loans, you could likely see an increase in how much you pay in interest, usually within a month of the rate hike, so you know by next month uh, maybe september at the latest and it's certainly going to apply to new folks uh, signing up so the rates for these kinds of loans tend to rise with the fed funds rate though technically they're not linked and then finally other variable rate loans that are affected by this um like personal loans and ha- home equity lines with credit the HELOCs, uh they set uh, the lenders set this uh, on their prime rate and again, based on the benchmark rate. So it's going to, again, based on your lender, size of the loan, your credit score, will be the direct effect. So those are some things that will have a direct, are affected directly by changes in the interest rates. And now this, uh, you know, all all the talking heads and all the uh, commentators and all that are going to be filling your head with all kinds of pontification about what they're going to do next, what the Fed's going to do next. However they seem to be forgetting to tell you a couple important things. First, the Fed itself often doesn't know what it's going to do over any period longer than a few weeks in advance. It's not that they're fickle. It's just that they're, again, like uh, Mr. Powell said, data dependent. They're going to, uh, based on the uh, available information to them at the time. So how can you know in advance? Second, you, as an investor, shouldn't reposition your portfolio based on interest rate forecasts, no matter how certain that view I mean, that's silly. It's a forecast, okay, operative term. You don't know what it means, uh, what it's going to be. Now, one other thing that uh, kind of flies in the face of this recession talk is that durable goods orders, that's things meant to last more than three years. They rose in June, they're up about 11% from a year ago. uh, And they're up uh, 9% in the second quarter. So, and that's a leading indicator, a leading economic indicator. So yeah, let's have that recession. (laughs) Now, one the few comments on home prices, uh, they were, in May, were 19.7% higher than the same month a year ago. That's according to CoreLogic case Schiller. As the second month of slower increases, however, as the housing market is cooling off a little bit, uh, the annual gain in April was 20.6%. So, not a lot, but... It is a deceleration, and so growth rates are still strong with all three composites at or above the 98th percentile historically. That's from Craig Lazara. He's managing director at S&P. said, new home sales dropped to the slowest pace in more than two years in June. Declining affordability continues to put off buyers. I get that. Um, and, uh, you know, the change in mortgage rate and home prices just since December is about a 30% increase in monthly payments on a new 30-year mortgage for the median new home. So it looks like buyers are beginning to get some relief on median prices. They're down two months in a row, lowest since June of 21. And so, you know, this tightening announcement really has to do with higher interest rates. Cash is still available and abundant, Uh, They folks have pulled back because of prices, but banks haven't stopped lending so much that people have stopped borrowing. So it's not uh, an an indication of anything particularly negative, in my occasionally humble opinion. We want to start with some comments about investing in general in the markets. Um, A lady named Maggie Mahar, Mahar, M-A-H-A-R. Anyway. Maggie's in her book Bull, B-U-L-L, Bull, she said, and I'm quoting, the problem is that much of the information that investors want and think they need is just that, information, not knowledge, unquote. Now, good investors do read a lot of information for sure. They're just more selective with what they read and pay attention to. And here are some guidelines about perhaps how to be more selective in terms of uh, who you're getting your information from? Number one, of course, is KXOI 920 AM on Saturday morning. You know, <laughs> but uh, avoid explanations of random events. It's more important to pay attention to, his- pay attention to historical context. See, folks can't stand the idea that events are random and unexplainable. So they try to make meaning. They give it attached meaning to it. Like every day, stocks fall 5%. Investors react to manufacturing data. What? You know, the more honest headline would probably be stocks fall half a percent because they just do that sometimes. And that's really true. Now, instead of reading explanations of what the market's doing, pay attention to what the market's doing in a historical context let me give you a for instance the next time you hear the stocks have had a down day regardless of by how much remember that that happens on average every other day during the market year yeah that that's true you can check these statistics out I promise you'll find that I am NOT leading you astray the next time uh, stocks have a uh, drop 10% from a recent high You might remember that they've done that almost every year since the Civil War. So these 10% drops that create all this heavy breathing by various and sundry talking heads, etc., I would recommend they do a little research before they begin hyperventilating. And the next time we have a recession, I think this is kind of interesting. No one in history has made it to the fifth grade without living through at least one recession. you got to have goals, you know. So it, it, And when you're trying to explain market moves, I think it gives you the impression that you can predict the future. No, you can't do that. And, and looking at market moves in a historical context reminds you to ignore the noise, a.k.a. headlines. And you can do that. So avoid breaking news. Pay more attention to the broad trends. That dovetails nicely with historical context. You know, breaking news pulls at your emotions and creates a sense of urgency, accurate or not, which is exactly when you're prone to make bad decisions. Broader trends is in fact where the money is. Now avoid strong opinions. Now, you know this to be true. The media loves confidence and hates wavering views. So you get some guy uh, who is yelling the loudest, they're going to get the spotlight. Now, whether or not they're accurate has little or no bearing on it because they all have their go-to guys. The analysts with the highest media profile have some of the very worst track records. A uh, guy who won a Nobel Prize for... Economics, working through the New York Times, comes to mind. Instead of paying attention to strong, loud opinions, give a lot more weight to those who talk about what they've learned from their past mistakes, as well as those who forecast in probabilities rather than absolute certainties. They may be a little less entertaining, but probably more likely to give you good advice. Now, avoid elaborate interpretations. Pay more attention to the handful of variables that matter most. You know, you don't need all that nitty-gritty details about the finance or about finance or the economy. You don't need to go to the molecular level. The big stuff: how much you need to save to retire, the valuation uh, metrics that you use, few industries, uh, trends driving growth, uh, economic growth, the direction of jobs growth. That tells you most of what matters. And as the saying goes, it's better to be mostly right than precisely wrong. I think that's a good good adage. Ed Yardini, Dr. Ed Yardini, has some words of comfort. He says the worst has passed for this bear market. He's president of Yardini Research, and he b- believes that the uh, S&Ps dropped to 36.66 last month, uh, mark, likely marked the low. He says, underpinning this call, in other words, uh, giving him the reason for it, is that the resilience in corporate earnings and the still healthy outlook for consumers and businesses, even in a slowing economy. The the doc says, it's never easy to pick a bottom in the stock market, but I'm going to give it a try. He goes on to say, the real question is going to be earnings season, and so far the earnings season is going reasonably well. The stock market's held up quite well. Now, he does appear to be in the minority. I think that's an understatement. Matter of fact, the Bank of survey this month of money managers, those managers have said they've cut their stock exposure to the lowest level since 2008, a sign of no faith in the recent market bounce. I don't understand those guys. I just swear to goodness, I just flat don't get it. it there's Logic has nothing to do with their responses. That's for dang sure. At the end of June, Deutsche Bank uh, poll showed seventy-two percent of respondents expected the, and these are money managers expected the S and P to fall to thirty-three hundred, rather than rallying to forty-five hundred. But the doc's got a pretty good track record, Ed Yardini, that is, and he called the bottom in the nineteen eighty-two bear market. He did it again in March two thousand nine, um, and. So he's, he's, he's pretty good. I mean, he deals with facts. He's not hyperbole kind of guy. The S&P has climbed 8% since that low in June. It's the longest recovery of the year so far. It's down more than 20% in the first half, as the headlines were happy to remind you. And now with commodity prices dropping and overall economic data pointing to a slowdown of some sort, the hope is inflation pressures may finally be dropping off. And he uh, added, finally, that uh, the second quarter GDP figure is considered a mid-cycle slowdown. He does not see a hard lending. So you heard it here first. And let's see. And, uh, you know, many are saying right now, I get this question a lot, you know, should I be in real estate? Uh, you know, what, something less risky than stocks, et cetera, et cetera, Risky being the operative term, but nonetheless... You know, housing is a real asset. Uh, Housing has an inflation edge is because the cost to replace the things are rising with higher prices and wages, aren't they? Now, if you had built your home or bought it when labor and material costs were much lower, like maybe last week, it would make sense that your house would be worth more today than when you built it. It would cost more to build your home all over again in a higher-cost environment. You know, that's called replacement cost. From 1928 to 2021... Uh, The annual nominal returns for stocks was 10%, for bonds, 4.8%, and for housing, 4.1%. So when inflation was higher, housing returns were above average, and when it was lower, housing returns were below average. And this makes sense when you consider rising costs should make the value of your home appreciate since it's a real asset. You know, 1970s, and I'm here to tell you, we're a very rough period for the financial assets, both stocks and bonds, seeing negative real returns, so that includes inflation. But housing cleared that inflation hurdle and gave home- homeowners an excellent hedge against rising prices. 2010 is also a good time to be a homeowner, even with the lowest inflation record rates on record. And that had to do primarily with the time the housing market crash. But it's important to note that not just inflation can lead to price growth in real estate. From January twenty twenty through February twenty two, the housing market U S was up nearly twenty one percent, even after accounting for inflation. Well, there wasn't hardly any inflation then, but in any regard, in little more than two years, U S homeowners have experienced higher gains than we've seen in seven of the eight la- excuse me seven of the last nine decades. You know, it's an, what they call an unprecedented run on housing prices. So even if we see inflation remain elevated in the coming years, it's hard to see housing continue to move considerably higher. Uh, regarding inflation, the inflation gauge that the Fed uses as its primary indicator uh, moved to its highest 12 Month gain in more than 40 years in June. This, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, so this came out on uh, Friday. Uh, It's called the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index. The shorthand is PCE. Anyhow, it was up 6.8%. That's the biggest jump since January 82. Now, if you exclude food and energy, and that means those are uh, because they are so variable every month, the Core PCE increased by 4.8% a year ago, but off from the recent high of 5.3% hit in February. Jeff Kilberg is chief investment officer and portfolio manager at Sanctuary. Well, Jeff had this to say. Big inflation, in my opinion, has happened. When you see the repricing of sectors in our economy, like housing and autos, that is really... Has to be recognized and appreciated. Uh, Andrew Slimman Sliman anyway, Andrew, senior portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley Investments, he had this ad. The market is starting to believe that this truly is the peak number of inflation, that there are enough inputs that have rolled over that we could start seeing inflation numbers subside in the coming months. If you look at the history of when we've had these inflation spikes, stocks tend to bottom when the market believes that inflation has topped out hmm so i think inflation is less a factor for markets than the fear of it is you know the fear specifically that it will stay near current levels indefinitely now it never has i mean even in the 70s we had like 10 years or so and it seemed like forever i can assure you but they don't go forever nothing goes forever at least in the market context. And that fear is combined with a number of other fears, including interest rates, supply chains. What about China's lockdowns? Oh, my goodness. They've all created massive uncertainty. Well, the more clarity you get on these issues, the more it could help stocks get over the jitters of today and move on. But when you consider inflation and stocks, I suggest putting your focus on the potential for falling uncertainty over over the foreseeable future, not inflation's ups and downs. As we've talked many times, when you're investing, and I don't care what you're investing in, remember the certainty of uncertainty. You can be absolutely certain that you cannot be certain what the results are going to be. Okay? You know, just... Understand that you get the, the ground is moving under you a little bit and that goes back to why you need asset allocation, diversification, because otherwise you're a gambler. I mean, that includes if you put everything in cash, you're a gambler by doing that as well, because you're gambling that that rate of return is going to stay ahead of taxes and inflation, uh, when you need it out into the future. Now, chow ma. He works at Wells Fargo Global Portfolio and Investment Strategy Group. Chow said, uh, stocks as a group have generated impressive returns in periods of rising inflation with levels that significantly surpass the effect of inflation. He goes on to say, we, presumably Wells Fargo, favor stocks in the current environment of economic expansion and rising inflation. They offer the potential for both long-term price appreciation and a desirable level of income, unquote. And that's another thing, talking about you know diversification, asset allocation. People are looking at bonds and they say, oh, the interest rates are going up. Oh, goody. It's gone from 1%, now I'm getting 2% instead of one5 I wouldn't think you could retire on that. But if you're looking at dividends, dividends in the S&P 500 stocks typically continue to rise regardless of what markets are doing and are have always, in my experience, uh, outperformed inflation over a period. So um, having a, a bunch of those dividend high-quality dividend payers, uh, and you look at dividend aristocrats, those kinds of companies that have paid dividends more than 25 years, and again, you can Google that list, uh <laughs> The total return, and that's what you're looking for with investing. That's growth plus any dividends or interest is going to provide you a, a good basis from which to, uh, on which to build your retirement on. So it, you know it's don't don't let the news confuse things for you. Okay, now there's been some talk about recession. I don't know if you've heard it, uh, but in my world, that uh, comes up pretty frequently. And so um, Charlie Bellello, he's, he's an itchy guy, but he, he's a technical guy. He's a charts and graphs guy. He did a, a survey, 10,000 folks, just random. And he said, he asked the question, is the U.S. economy in a recession or not in a recession? And this was you know, about a month ago. It was 59 in 40 not. So, again, a lot of people are being affected by the headlines telling them day after day that you're in a recession. Kind of hurts my head to listen to those people, but that's that's the trend right now. Uh, the economist Paul Samuelson once observed, and I'm quoting, the stock market has predicted nine of the last five economic recessions, unquote. <laughs> It's funny, but it's true. I mean, you know, you get these kind of head fakes and markets doing one thing and everybody does the world-famous conclusion jump and uh, the uh, jumping is not necessarily accurate of what it is that they, uh, the premise that they use. Now, the GDP numbers, which were released on Wednesday, that's, uh, they dropped uh, by 0.9%. And it was driven, the GDP was driven primarily the result by what they call the noisiest components, net exports, that is, value of exports minus the value of imports, and inventories. And inventories are hard to manage, as Walmart uh, told us this week, when they're trying to get everything squared away, they had too much of the stuff that people aren't buying anymore of, and not enough of what they want now. So that retail's a tough job for sure. But... The biggest drag in the second quarter was the slowdown in the pace of inventory accumulation uh, because they had enough stuff. Nobody really had to recharge, and with reduced purchasing going on, reduced that took GDP growth down by two percentage points. Now, inventories weren't the only soft spot, uh, but the market reaction on Wednesday was pretty much non existent. It suggested, I think, very strongly that a slowdown or even a mild recession has already been priced into the the share prices. So, you know, and this was the second decline after the first quarter 1.6 drop. And, of course, all the headlines, the talking heads, the podcasts, you pick it. They're all feverishly debating whether this spells recession. And, unfortunately, a lot of it is driven by... excuse me, partisan political implications. And your humble and obedient servant has very strong uh, uh, feelings in that regard. But as far as we're concerned here, uh, I'm a down-the-middle guy. And uh, I'm driven strictly by capitalism. So that's the way we deliver this information. You know, for investors, this debate is largely backward-looking. You see, the GDP is old news. Okay? I mean, it's already happened. Uh, It's the end of the second quarter, so a lot of that information is three months old at the minimum. And we're going to get two more readings on it at the first of the month and the next two months. So those are subject to change. So, for... We've already dealt with the mild economic contraction, and now we're looking ahead to what the next three to 30 months have in store relative to expectations. That's how the stock market looks. The stock market looks ahead. These economic reports, for the most part, are backward looking, they're history statements. And stocks move ahead of economic activity. You know, bear markets often precede recessions because stocks discount the likely decline in both investment and corporate earnings. For forward looking markets, recession calls are, they you know, they're little re- relevance. We don't think it's very helpful to get caught up in after the fact refereeing when stocks have already moved on. You know, this year's so far pretty shallow bear market would definitely be consistent with a shallow recession. But whether or not we even have one is definitely questionable. Uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, uh, has some criteria that they use. They're the uh, they they're the arbiter, as they call it. Um, it's a business cycle dating committee. I don't think that's an online hookup site by any stretch. Uh, but it's uh, uh eight economists. Can you imagine that might be a fun conversation. But anyway, um, they consider all kinds of different things. You know, it. it Second quarter was mixed, but does it constitute a recession? You know, they're going to, they, they, the NBER's business cycle committee, will officially decide, but they do it in hindsight. And it's usually likely in their rearview mirror by the time they actually make that decision. And let me just read you a couple of guidelines directly from them as to how they come up to this. They say, and I'm quoting, because a recession must influence the economy broadly and not be confined to one sector the committee emphasizes economy-wide measures of economic activity. There is no fixed rule about what measures contribute information to the process or how they are weighed in our decisions. In recent decades, the two measures we have put the most weight on are real personal income, less transfers, and non-farm payroll employment, unquote. So, not exactly the stuff that you read the headlines on. So, that's why there is no uh, run by the NBER to say, oh, it's a recession. Oh, yeah, we can tell. You know, uh, uh, Brian Westbury, the uh, esteemed chief economist that First Dress says, two quarters of real negative GDP isn't a recession. It's a much simplified rule of thumb. Jobs and industrial production are both up this year. So are corporate sales and profits. He says, remember recess in school? It's just like that, but for the economy. You know, and and... That definition of the two quarters hasn't been fulfilled in two of the three last recessions. In 2020, the downturn was two months, not two quarters. In 2001, the real GDP didn't contract for two quarters in a row either. You know, again, as NBER says, you boil it down to income and employment. If income and employment turn south, and not just a little bit, there's a good chance that economic output will turn lower. Now, the strange thing about what we're doing now is that output is slowing in certain areas, but income and the labor market are still very solid. Industrial production are up at a rapid pace. Payrolls have expanded. Uh, Unemployment rate has dropped. We've added jobs. Personal income is as high as it's ever been. The typical U.S. household earned more than ever as of May, even after accounting for inflation. And their finances were secure, with consumer spending rising at a steady clip, even as their savings rate remained elevated. Those numbers aren't recessionary. Now, it's possible personal income and unemployment daddy will soften in the coming months from whatever combination of events. But it's also increasingly likely we could see real GDP contract while those measures remain strong. And if that happens, certain talking heads are going to lose their tiny little minds. Because some people want to be right about a recession prediction. Some people in finance, you know who they are, are pessimistic by nature. Some think the system is rigged, and some people just want to watch the world burn up. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't really matter to most regular people, and that would be D and me, if real GDP falls two quarters in a row and, and BER does not label it an official recession. And whatever you call it, a greater than 20% decline from Jan's highs through mid-June suggests that already a substantial amount of economic weakness is reflected in the shares, share prices. And what matters from here is how things go relative to expectation. Now, there's a lady named Anita Markowska. She's chief financial economist at Jeffreys. Her quote, I think, is pretty good. She says, we're in a sentiment recession. I don't think we're in an actual recession. The growth slowdown is driven by inflation and price shocks. As they fade through the near term, that should allow growth to accelerate, unquote. But that sentiment recession is accurate. Man, oh man, I can't believe people's attitudes. It's like I haven't had a recession, so I want one, so let's have one. I mean, that seems to be the default in many people's thinking. You know, the only thing that really matters, in my opinion, to normal folks is their own personal economy. No person or household is representative of all the recession data. Everybody has their own unique preferences, spending habits, finances, circumstances, just like the inflation rate. It's it's really, sure, the national rate applies in all instances, but not all the way down the line. It may be seeming like splitting hairs to argue about the definition of a recession, but (laughs) there's a potential scenario in the months ahead where a lot of people are going to be arguing that we're in a recession while others are going to say nay-nay with great vigor. Um, And the expectation is things will only get worse over the next six months with the Expectations Index from the Conference Board. That's at its lowest levels in over a decade, back to that sentiment recession uh, that uh, Ms. Markowski referred to. Tim Quinlan is senior economist at Wells Fargo. He said, defining a recession isn't easy and extends beyond simply a downturn's duration as to how deep and widespread it is throughout the economy. He said data points can be broken down into four bigger groups, production, income, employment, and spending. He goes on to say the economy has never been in a recession when at least three of these indicators rose during the month. And while we don't yet have real sales through May, non-farm employment, personal income, and industrial production all rose, suggesting the economy is not yet in a recession, unquote. So what's this all mean for the Fed? Well, likely nothing like to where it was compared after its meeting. Uh, the GDP report, as I said, rearview mirror from April through June. Now, before its next meeting in September, they're going to have new information on which to base the you know, new data on which to decide whether or not we're going to raise rates and if so, by how much. Household spending is held up in the second quarter. Consumers continue to travel and shop. More people got jobs and their savings, boosted by federal quote-unquote stimulus efforts, remained above uh, the pre-pandemic levels. We've had solid job growth in the first half of the year and the effect of high imports on GDP has led some to believe that the NBER will not declare a recession during the first two quarters of this year. Mark Zandi is chief economist at Moody's Analytics. He said we weren't in a recession for the first half of the year, but odds are rising—excuse me—that we will be uh, by the end of the year. Uh, Mr. Zandi said the bustling jobs market is the primary reason that NBER won't declare a recession. Uh, people has very negative sentiment. Yeah, okay, (laughs) that's for sure. It's about as dark as I've ever seen it. I've never seen anything like it in terms of anticipation of the bad bad economy that's just ahead. At the end of the day, a recession is loss of faith. Consumers lose faith they're going to have jobs. Businesses lose faith they're going to be able to sell what they produce. Risks are very high when we lose faith and go into a recession. And that, to me, would be the driver. It's all about your attitude. Remember, we talked last week about attitude and how that drives your investment decisions. Well, it also drives your bigger decisions as well. You know, nothing in the upturn since the 16th of June, when Dr. Yardini suggested we had bottomed, is at all inconsistent with us enduring a shallow recession. It may be, but we don't know for sure. And stocks are moving on to pricing in an economic recovery ahead. And I think that's pretty much the case. We're anticipating, you know, changes. You're seeing changes in the drivers of inflation. Uh, The stimulus money is turned off. Uh, We've got uh, the shipping lanes uh, have been... I won't say fixed, but certainly there's not fleets of ships parked outside Long Beach and L.A. and other places waiting to get in line to unload their goods. Um, It's starting to get better. Now, the thing is, you have to maintain your chilliness, stay frosty, as we used to say, uh, in terms of this uncertainty. Don't, Don't let something that's happening in the next couple months mess up what you need to have available to you in the next... Years, if not to your advantage. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this helpful. Um, we'll be back next Saturday at 9. Uh, and this is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the East Office of Opus 111 Group. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayle. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, Opus one eleven group.com